Welcome to another episode of Community Voice. You have Thomas Lynn here, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kieran Shandy. Today, we are interviewing Matt Plummer. Matt kind of touches a bunch of different categories that that CYC and you know a lot of us uh, young professionals are, are working slash focused on. In kind of the CYC space, Matt has worked at a nonprofit consulting company called BridgeSpan. Matt has also kind of gone from that to found a startup which focuses on productivity and figuring out how to give people more of you know their most valuable resource, which is their time, and, and make it as valuable as possible. Uh, and and he also really cares about his his local community. He's going to tell us a little bit about Redding, California, uh, where he's where he's out of right now, and and what makes it so special and and why we should all care more about you know our local communities outside of you know the major hubs that that we see on the news and we generally uh, focus on. So uh, without further ado, hey, Matt, how are you? Great. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me join today. It's a privilege to be part of what you guys are doing. And Matt, to kick things off, I think it would be good to just kind of walk through your background, both you know where you grew up and then educationally, uh, you know what made you interested in going into nonprofit consulting? Tell us a little bit about your time at BridgeSpan before we jump into other topics. Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in a really small town in New Jersey, in the part of New Jersey that most people don't actually know exists, which is the western part where there's horse farms and country, um, not what you see on Jersey Shore. So my the town I grew up in was Califan, uh, one square mile big, went to K through eight school of 150 kids. So you're with the same 18 kids or so for nine years. Uh, but it was a powerful experience of being part of a community that knew each other and um, that uh, did the small things to make it a great place to live. And so that was, I grew up there, um, left uh, there to go to college in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale University and with the idea of studying mechanical engineering. However, about a year and a half into doing um, problem sets, I realized that I was also interested in some things that were a bit different from what I was uh, spending my time uh, with in, in studying engineering. And that was, I, I really enjoyed having conversations with folks about where their life was headed, coaching them, counseling them a bit. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder if I uh, studied psychology so I could understand how people work and think about things, how they operate in groups, how society functions. And so I ended up double majoring in psychology and mechanical engineering, not with the intent of becoming a psychologist for engineers, but really to round out um, my understanding of, of how people work in addition to understanding math and science. So upon leaving college, I you know, knew math and knew how people work to some extent as much as you can from undergrad studies, um, but felt like I had a big gap in terms of my understanding of how a business operates. And so I went to a company called McMaster Car Supply Company, which is an industrial supply distributor. The easiest way to think about what that is, is to um, basically it was Amazon, but for industrial supplies. So big warehouse that um, sold nuts and bolts and screws and small cranes and everything else in between. So I spent two years there and learned a ton about how a business operates. I got to work in the warehouse, sales, marketing, and was exposed to a whole bunch more and really began to kind of get some sense of how do you run a business? What does it look like to operate in a professional environment, to manage people, to supervise, to think about um, how you satisfy customers? But 
What I've also found is that what I enjoyed thinking about outside of work was quite different from what I had to think about while I was at work. And I was interested in finding a, a job that would give me the opportunity to have more integration where I could actually um, be doing the things and spending the bulk of my hours on things that I really enjoyed and was passionate about. And for me, that was uh, more around social impact. Um, and how do we solve um, some of the biggest challenges facing society? And so as I was kind of on that journey, found that Bridgespan actually was a place uh, in the Bridgespan group was a place where you got to blend um, business skills, rigor, strategic thinking with doing work um, in the nonprofit social sector space. And that seemed like a great fit because I did care about all the way back from my engineering days of, of being rigorous, of having data, but also wanted to direct it towards helping people. And so um, ended up making the transition to Bridgespan two years out of college and started off um, learning a ton, learning how to be a consultant, learning what it was like to operate in the social sector, which was much bigger than I had thought it was before getting to Bridgespan. And that was the beginning of my time at Bridgespan, which, you know, Bridgespan started in 2000 as uh, with the idea basically of um can we take what Bain & Company, so it's a spin-out from Bain & Company, can we take what Bain & Company has done for companies in the private sector for years and apply it to the social sector? Is there a market for that? Would it actually create value? Turns out there was. I was joining 11 years later, and it was you know, a flourishing place of three offices and about 200 people. And so that was the beginning of my, my journey at Bridgman. That's great. And, um, and I, I have to mention, so now you're at Bridgespan coming from Califon, New Jersey, which, you know, I, I quickly just looked up that, that Califon was going to be named California, but they couldn't fit the entire word on the, on the welcome sign. So they, they named it Califon. I, I don't know if that's, that's an untrue story, but, it, but it's a good segue from Bridgespan to, you know, starting a, a company out of, out of Redding, California. Walk us through that transition. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as I know, that story is actually true. At least it's the one everyone tells in Califon as well. So there's actually an old train station where that sign supposedly was, though the sign is no longer there. You know, I was, I was at Bridgeband for five years, uh, enjoyed time there um, from worked my way up from being you know, an associate consultant, doing a lot of analytical work to over time um, managing teams there. And I had one really enjoyed the work, had learned a ton had been able to um, do a lot of work that I thought was meaningful. And that was exciting to see the progress that was happening and be part of an amazing organization that treated people well and that knew uh, what its core values were and really lived into those. So that was an amazing experience. And at the same time, there were other things that uh, my family and I were interested in pursuing. And one of those was being part of uh, a, a church community that was located out in Redding, California. And so after five years of being at Bridgepan, uh, really enjoying my time there, having learned a ton, um, knew that there were also other things that I wanted to do and and also other contexts in which I wanted to apply the skills and what I had learned at Bridgepan. And Reading, actually, strangely enough, um, was kind of a perfect blending point of a lot of those um, passions. One of those was um, my family and I wanted to be part of a church community that was here and that we had followed from a distance for a long time. And so that was part of the reason for coming to Reading. Another reason was I had for probably six, seven years, had this itch to start something and to uh, be part of a startup. And so that looked like a, a unique opportunity to do that in Reading. And then uh, finally, 
Bridgeman, and during my time there, we had done a lot of work um, in what we call community revitalization, where it's you're focused on a particular geography. It could be a city, it could be a neighborhood, a block, and you're figuring out how can we help this community make progress on social well-being indicators, make it a better place to live uh, for all the people who live in that community. And that was something I got to do as an advisor for uh, you know five, six years but um, had wanted the opportunity to try my hand at more of in a direct action execution role. And so Reading was also a unique place where a number of the key players in, in the city had a vision for the city turning around. Um, and also a place where there was a lot of optimism about change in that, unlike Boston or New York or some of these other big cities, it's a city of 90,000 people. And so while that's sizable, it's also... Um, much easier to get your hands around. Uh, Reading also was historically known as poverty flats ever since the gold rush days and had gone through peaks of economic boom, uh, first in mining and then in the timber industry in the, in the 1900s. But then following these peaks as those industries had kind of dried up, um, had gone into periods of less economic prosperity. And so it was a, a place that was ripe for contribution and investment. So that was what got me to Reading. Uh, spent a year out here working at Rich Band remotely, and so kind of continued in, in what I was doing and just getting to know the community and building um, some connections, understanding what it would look like and if it was right to, to stay here. And then after about a year in Reading, left Bridge Band to, to start what is now Zarvana. Let's set the table a little bit in terms of what is productivity to you, to Zarvana, and walk us through kind of the problem or, or the landscape and, and why you, you think, and I, I'm, a, I'm you know, you're, you know, much more about it than, than I do. I, I just sit at a desk and sometimes, you know, get pulled in different directions, but, but kind of walk us through that landscape a little bit. Absolutely. So productivity in its, in its basic sense, the way we talk about it is getting more done in less time at the same or higher quality. And so it's a factor of those three pieces of you have this assumption that people just are naturally very productive if they've gotten to a certain point in life. But then when you ask them, have you ever received a training specifically on productivity and how to get more done in less time and build some of the skills um, that we found are critical to productivity? They say no. We ask them, you know, have you ever gotten coaching or guidance or do you regularly get coaching or guidance uh, around productivity from your supervisor? And they say no. And so what we have is this assumption that people will be productive. And so we don't actually make an investment in there. And so like anything else where we don't invest, people are actually, you know, reasonably under, not everyone, but unless they take their own initiative, people are reasonably underdeveloped in the area of productivity, in particular around developing the habits that will actually help them get more done in less time. And that was what kind of my experience was, you know, I started meeting every other week with a colleague um, to talk about productivity. And we didn't really know what we were going to do. We just were passionate about it. And we said, let's start talking. Six months into that, we had nothing to stand for it. Didn't really know what we were doing any more than we did six months previously. And then we got focused. We actually, you know, our, our aha moment, which um, all those who would be in, who are in consulting or want to be would appreciate is we said, you know, whatever we've been doing in the last six months is not working. But when we're on a client case, we actually tend to produce pretty good work. So what if we treat this like a client case. And literally that same day, we started making progress after six months of being stalled. And so what ended up happening is that um, over the next few weeks, we defined a metric 
for how we were going to assess our productivity. We ran um, a pilot where we set a goal for improvement on that. And six months later, we had seen our hours worked per week drop by 15 to 20%. And we didn't really know what did that, but that was kind of the beginning of saying, okay, we thought that we were pretty productive, but obviously there's a lot of time that we're leaving on the table here and a lot of savings that we didn't know existed that is really here. How do you kind of recommend, you know, breaking between the kind of smaller focus tasks that you have to get done, you know, in a day and, and kind of large long-term goal setting or or kind of the, the bigger items that you can't accomplish in a day and and allocating time accordingly? It's a great question. And you know, a few things I would say. One is if you have a big task that you're trying to accomplish, start by breaking that down into the small tasks that are required to do it. Not only is that just good work planning in terms of you know doing consulting work, we're always developing work plans. And so that is the the art and the skill of work planning is breaking a big, you know, a six-month project down into here's what we're actually going to do next, and here's what each person is going to do. And so taking that same skill, which is applied at the team level often, and applying it in the context of your individual experience is important just to you know do a good job and get that work done on time. But what it also does is then it equips you with a list of small tasks that you know when you need to get them done. They're specific enough and discrete enough to actually be something you can focus on and something that you can then add to your to-do list um, with you know, a level of prioritization or a deadline. And so I would start there. You know, One of the things that we suggest to some people, not all people, but it can be helpful, is some people we suggest that when they enter tasks into their to-do list, that they actually indicate how much time they expect it to take. And so we recommend, you know, pick four different time increments and create a folder or a tag or a label, however your system is set up um, around those. So under 10 minutes, under 30 minutes, under, you know, 30 to 60 minutes, and then over 60. And so when you enter that into your to-do list, you're actually entering in your estimated amount of time that you expect that to take. And so what that enables you to do is say I start my work day with a meeting and I know that I'm going to end this meeting and I'm going to have 15 minutes before my next meeting. Well, usually in that 15 minutes, we lose most of it because we're trying to figure out, Oh, what should I do? You know, what can I do in 15 minutes? Is it really worth starting something? Maybe I'll just like go talk to someone um, while getting filling up my water bottle. But if you have a to-do list that is set up so that you can click on that folder and see here are my tasks that I think will take less than 15 minutes. You can bang out three of them right there. Similarly, the other side is true as well in that if you have a big two-hour block, it's easy to quickly jump into that task that will take under 15 minutes because it gives us some sort of satisfaction of completing something. It's generally pretty easy to do, and maybe we just thought of it or heard of it recently. Rather than taking that full two hours and dedicating it to the thing that will actually fill that time and that will uniquely fill that time. Um, and so that can be a helpful way too to best use your time as you go throughout the week so that you are getting to the things that actually take a long time and saving the things that don't take much time for those little transition moments that you have. What about people who are more go with the flow and um, they, they want to be productive but not be so structured? What's a, a tip that you can kind of offer those folks? One of the things we actually do is somewhat of a personality test that's kind of like Myers-Briggs because we do think that the, so the answer for someone might be, you need to get to one to-do list and like use one to-do list. But we realize that if I'm a J, the way I actually implement that 
recommendation is going to look very different than if I'm a P, for example, or it probably will. And so we want to know that upfront so that when we're giving guidance, we can tailor it to the personality of the person taking that. I'll say something generally that might be helpful, particularly for the P's, is that one, don't try to implement the habits that you see the J's doing in the same way you see them doing it. You have to make it fit your your own you know, working style, the way that you like to develop habits and something that you're comfortable with, but also don't preclude yourself from something you typically have thought is uh, reserved for the J domain. And, and so sometimes we, we think that like, ooh, like that doesn't fit with my personality, when actually the reality is that, well, maybe you've just done it that way for 10 years. And so it's more a matter of habit than it is of like, ooh, I, I can't be effective doing that. And so I think you, you know, and this applies to days, P's, whoever you are, you want to strike a balance between finding something that works for you as you currently operate and pushing yourself to say, is the reason I'm doing something a certain way really because that is what works best for me? Or is it because it's a habit? It's actually a habit that I've been doing for years and years. Um, and what we found is that, and what we try to teach people is, you know, organization, actually the, the root word there comes from uh, a word related to tool. And so being, you know, organization is a tool in your hand to do things effectively. So we need to get out of the mindset of thinking about it as a personality trait. And so we try to push back on, on some of the mindsets that can keep us back from embracing things that will help us. And while also being aware of where people are at now. And, you know, one of the principles of, of habit development, and this is, you know, made famous by BJ Fonda, a researcher at Stanford, is start small. You know, he famously calls it tiny habits. And um, the classic example there is if, you know, which he says is if you're trying to start a habit of flossing your teeth, start by flossing one tooth. And once you have that down, then move on, you know? And so it's the same thing. If you feel like, wow, I could never like archive my emails into folders, like I need to just like leave it all in my inbox, don't necessarily start by trying to archive every email that comes in, you know, pick a reasonable small chunk off that you can do. And what habit development research would say is like something that you can do with as little motivation as possible, because you don't want motivation to be the reason why you don't do something. Um, which is often the reason why we don't develop habits. I thought we might want to transition to talking about your move to Reading and um, your work with Zervana. So I know we've been talking a lot about productivity, but it'd be great if you could kind of just give uh, the pitch for Zervana in like, terms of your programs and services. What are some of those um, things that you work with clients on uh, right off the bat to help them improve? Of course, yeah. So the program that we ended up developing is is actually, um, and kind of going back again to diabetes prevention, because when I was doing that work, we came across a company that had taken what was an in-person program being delivered in YMCAs and other community centers and took it and put it online and ended up getting amazing results, both in terms of quality and just the number of people who were engaged with it. And so we said, and so I learned a lot about this company called Amada that was, you know, doing this online behavior change program in the context of diabetes prevention. And then, you know, over the time at Bridgeman, we realized that there was also these other companies in the mental health space that were doing, taking that same model and applying it in the mental health space and similarly getting amazing results. And so I said, oh, this is interesting. It looks like there's an emerging model for online behavior change. So rather than, you know, reinvent the wheel, let's take that model and apply it to the world of productivity. And so that model, it's a four-part model. 
It is uh, a combination of interactive lessons, data tracking, peer groups, and one-on-one coaching. And so combining those four components into a nine-week model. And, and, and the way it works is that, um, you know, we'll work with a company and, um, and that company, you know, might have, um, might say, you know, sustainability is a key issue. Folks, every time we survey people each year, you know, sustainability is the number one concern. Or when people leave, they say it's because of sustainability. And so that, you know, that can be a, a reason that people would be like, oh, yeah, we need something like this. You also have folks who are saying, we're trying to increase the professionalization and effectiveness of our teams. And so we want them to build these core skills and develop these core skills so that they can be most effective. And so that can be another reason that that an employer would say, oh, this is this is something that we could use for our employees. And because what we're doing is we're combining, you know, habit development research with management consulting skills, which, you know, hold a lot of transferable value across, you know, all industries um, with behavior science, behavioral science. Um, and so there's a number of different reasons for why an employer might say this is something that where we could, this could help our employees and take them to the next level. The way it works then is it's a nine-week program model. And so you'd have a cohort of employees go through it. And the first week is about two main things. The first is defining your goals for the program, but really they could be your goals for this season of your life around sustainable productivity is what we call it. And so those might be things like work no more than 50 hours a week. It might be things like get home by 6 p.m. or it might be invest an extra two hours in coaching my team members every week. You know, a lot of people we've found actually, they want to be investing that time in coaching and developing their team members, but they just don't have it right now. And so you set your goals for the program and then you also take this diagnostic. And what we do on the back end of that is we look at your results, which we play back to you. You can see how you score on each of the seven skill areas and within those skills relative to the average of all our participants who have taken the program. And then what we do is we propose two to four, what we call habit packages, which are groups of habits that when you put them together actually lead to a meaningful change. And the participant gets to pick one that they want to focus on for weeks two through five of the program. So they pick one and then um, the next four weeks look like a combination of getting a deep dive lesson around that topic. You know, and when we say deep dive, it's going deep on the topic, but it's, you know, it takes people only about 10 to 15 minutes to go through. And those lessons are not like read 10 pages of this textbook type writing. Um, Instead, it's like three lines of content, a question that causes you to reflect on your current behaviors, multiple choice to see if you're figuring out how you could apply it. So it's very interactive. And so deep dive lessons. Also, every week we're asking you about, you know, how are you doing on your goals? And you're actually, we're actually tracking measurable progress towards the goals. How consistently are you executing the behaviors that you said you were going to work on as part of your habit package? And so every week we track that data and then we play it back to you. We say, here's your dashboard for the week. This is what it looked like. And then third piece is that uh, about four times over the course of the program, you participate in a peer group call with three of your peers and, and your coach. And we use a case-based model for the peer groups in which uh, essentially each time you have a peer group, one person is going to come and be the focus of that. And the whole group is going to workshop their challenge. And so it's a way for people to get practical support and help from their peers on challenges that matter to them. But it also, and, and maybe, you know, at least as important is it begins to develop and, and, and shift the culture a bit in that it gives people just like, you know, we keep using Myers-Briggs, just like Myers-Briggs as a common language for people to talk about these things. 
it's no longer like, oh, you're making me work too much. It's like, oh, actually, I can talk about it in language that doesn't offend people and that is focused on habit development, skill building. And it also um, creates a sense of community around this topic. So that's the peer groups. And then the fourth component, the one-on-one coaching. So what I like to call it is it's data-enabled or tech-enabled coaching. Rather than sitting down with an executive coach for an hour every few weeks and going through this long process of figuring out what's going on and how you can address that, our coaches are using all the responses to the diagnostic and every lesson that you fill in and looking at those when you do them and then saying, okay, based on what we've seen across all these other users, like you might want to try this or, you know, we've seen a lot of people who are PEs um, have trouble with this, like maybe think about doing it this way. Um, do you want to hop on the call, a call quickly, and we can talk through how to talk to your manager about this. And so that's what the coach is doing. The coach is also there for people to reach out if they just want to connect. So that's what the model looks like for weeks two through five. On week five, we we send them another set of habit packages to pick from and for the next four weeks. And so they pick a second habit to, to develop in the last four weeks of the program um, and basically repeat the same steps, uh, but for that habit. The only other thing is that, you know, we thought, this is great. We get to focus on two habits that are going to offer you the highest ROI. But at the same time, you know, we said there's seven skill areas. You'll probably hit two of them by doing that. But we don't want you to leave having a narrow view of productivity and the skills that are necessary to be productive. We would rather you come out with an understanding and a foundation of the full set of tools, even if you're only going, you know, six inches deep on the rest. And so what we do is also send previews of the other five topics um, that, again, are about a 10 to 15 minute lesson. And so those are woven in so that people come out not only with, you know, having overcome their two biggest challenges, but also having a foundation for productive skills. I like how, how systematic that is, especially in, you know, juxtaposed against searching it and then reading the seven or eight or 10 or 11 or three steps that, that are going to make you more productive. And I also think kind of turning it into to something that, gives you the skills rather than just giving you the fish, giving you the fishing rod, you know, that that's kind of a, a powerful thing, obviously moving forward as the program elapses from memory to, to some extent, if you can still maintain those habits. I, I wanted to talk, segue a little bit into Reading and you spoke about how you kind of came to to Reading from Boston, but originally from kind of a small town in New Jersey where where you really felt, you know, community. It's much harder, obviously, in a metropolitan area like Boston or New York, as you said. And I, I kind of wanna wanna understand a little bit about what what do you think is the motivation for creating a beneficial impact to your community? You know, why why does that matter to you? You know, for I think for those of us who live in kind of large cities, it's hard, you know, both to feel that impact. And I know Reading has 90,000 people, so it's probably easier. But, you know, I kind of want to understand a little bit why you're driven to help your community. And then then if you could kind of talk through some of the ways that that you're helping community in Reading, especially with kind of the, the underlining of, you know, we can all do this in, in our own communities and both why it's important and then, and then how to, how to best, um, you know, achieve kind of that, that goal in your community. You know, I think it'd be great to get your perspective about that because I, I think, I think in the backdrop of this conversation, you know, 
you, you worked at a consulting firm, you've started a company, you know, it's, it's startup. It has a really, really nice website. You would anticipate you to be in Palo Alto or San Francisco. And the fact that, you know, you're, you're in Reading and have chosen to remain there, I think, I think is important. And, and I think you have a story to tell around that. So that would be great to kind of get your perspective on that. I'm super passionate about this. And so appreciate the opportunity to connect to that, which part of it, you know, for me as an individual is having spent six years at Bridgespan where impact is a core value and also just what you're focused on in your work. And so it's become ingrained in my DNA, I think, to think about impact first. And so that applies both to community impact, but also, you know, and just this is a little bit on the side, but also just to the program, you know, at the end of the day, if we're delivering this program to employees, but they're not getting the outcomes that we would like to see, then that's kind of meaningless to me. You know, we don't want to deliver our training program that supposedly helps people, but we don't actually know if it helps people or we, or it's not. And so we do a lot around tracking data there to make sure that this is actually having an impact on people. So with that aside, I think, um, in some ways, I almost started in a place of how can I contribute to the city and then got to the place of saying I should start a company versus the opposite. And just to explain a little bit of that thinking, you know, I had been in the nonprofit world for six years and I had seen the power and the best of the nonprofit world um, through that and think it's amazing and will always be involved in some ways in that. And at the same time, had saw some of the challenges and the constraints of operating in that sector. For one, money is always an issue. And, you know, we were always talking with nonprofits and helping them around what, we, what Bridgeband calls their funding model. You know, how are you going to fund this on a sustainable basis? And so, I, you know, that was that was a constant challenge. Um, and do you have the money you need to grow and to really increase your impact as a nonprofit? Constant challenge. The other thing is when I thought about Reading as, you know, previously a timber community where that industry has largely dried up and, that local context plus the more macro context of, you know, the workforce shifting away from lower skilled labor to, you know, more both knowledge workers and uh, higher skilled workers as technology continues to take over more of those types of jobs was thinking, you know, how, how ultimately what this community needs is jobs. And, you know, at Bridgeman, we've done a lot of work around uh, youth employment and employing, you know, it's a lot of people refer to them as the opportunity youth. Uh, I think it might be 7 million um, 16 and 24 year olds who are disconnected from work and school. And there's a lot of effort placed on, on trying to serve them. And it's great and it should continue. And, I, you know, it was exciting to be a part of it in the, any way I was. Um, and at the same time, saw that as a nonprofit, it's hard to do a lot around employment. And so that kind of, you know, combining those two reasons in my head was like, okay, like actually starting a company that will have a nonprofit or, a, you know, a big community impact piece of it might be a more effective vehicle in my context um, for advancing change here. And, and so that was a bit of the, the, the story there. Um, you know, the other thing I thought about is you see a lot in, in, in companies today and it's changed some, but, you know, 10 years ago, companies were adding CSR, corporate social responsibility, mainly as a, at least the way it came across was mainly as a branding piece. Um, as communities, as younger workers started to demand it and wanted to see it, it was mainly a branding piece of, you know, what are we, and there's obvious exceptions to this. It was kind of uh, more of an afterthought than a pre-thought. 
And so what we decided at Nirvana is, you know, we don't have a ton of money now. We don't have a lot of resources now. But what we want to do is make it a commitment from the start that we are going to commit to um, creating change in our community, investing funds into our community in a strategic way from the beginning. Because we don't want this to be, you know, be something where, oh, yeah, now that we have like a lot of extra money, we should, uh, you know, think about giving back. Uh, it's not giving back. It's um, it's a proactive investment from the beginning with an intentional aim of making real progress in the city. And so that was also a bit of the, the, the ethos or the philosophy behind it. Let's make this something that's true from the start um, and not lose sight of it. And, you know, our first thing that we did, and it was very small, um, but we heard of what was happening in the community around crime, crime being, you know, one of the key challenges that Reading is facing. And that there was an initiative going on to basically help fund a few of the police officers who due to budget cuts were going to have to be let go in a time when crime was increasing. And so again, we don't have a you know huge cash reserves to, to invest in it, but we invested a little bit and we said, okay, we're going to get behind this and support this. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, anyone can do is, is I'd say, you know, think about and, and talk to people. What is the biggest challenge that your community is facing? And what are the ways, small or big, that you can invest in that with the funds you have or with the resources you have. The other thing is, you know, and obviously I have an advantage um, coming from a consulting background for nonprofits is that um, I love connecting with nonprofit leaders in the community and talking with them and sharing whatever level of expertise or guidance I have in that space. And our team is beginning to do the same thing of just adding our previous experience our way of approaching things, the skills that we have and directing them towards nonprofit leaders in the community. Um, that's another way, you know, a business leader can think about what is it that their business does that can uniquely add to their community. Um, and so that's a small way that we're applying, you know, what we do at Zarvana to our community. Because, you know, at this point in the way we see it for the foreseeable future is, you know, not many or, or you know, perhaps any of our clients will be in Reading paying clients. But at the same time, we still want to take what we do at Zarvana and make it useful to those who are in Reading and have them benefit from that. You know, I'm just so blown away about um, the different facets of how you think about Zarvana. There is an economic revitalization component to it. There is a community building aspect to it. There is like a personal dimension to it in terms of managing, you know, yourself uh, and therefore your life kind of theme. And I just want to say that I wish a lot of uh, business leaders out there could be as holistic in their thinking as you are and in terms of building their companies, because I'm sure a lot of communities would be better, better for it. So I do have a few rapid fire questions for you, Matt. So how this is going to work is I'm going to just ask a very simple question and uh, try to answer in 10 to 15 seconds or less. So the first question is very simple. What does Zarvana mean? Zarvana is an ancient Hebrew word that means time. Okay. How did you come up with the name? Went through a lot of different options, ended up deciding I didn't want a name that was super explicit. And like, you know, Facebook actually means kind of a book of faces. Didn't want that. And so just started with a dictionary researching names that meant words that were, um, you know, aligned with what we were doing. Great. Hardest lesson that you've learned while starting your own company? As a strategy consultant, you develop a lot of strategic plans. Um, the hardest thing has been figuring out, okay, 
I know my strategic priorities, but how do I do sequencing within them when I have limited resources to apply to it? Okay. On the topic of habits, what's the, the worst habit you learned to leave behind from your last job? I have a tendency of switching between things pretty rapidly and feeling like, oh, you know, I can do this fairly well. It's it's not um, that big of a deal. And so for me, developing the focus of saying I'm going to allocate certain time for certain activities and not do as much of that switching in between. What does writing mean to you in one word? Future. So Matt, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? You know, I guess the last thing I would say is you often think about as you're, as you're building a career or building a company that um, you'll, um, you'll get around to doing stuff that can impact your community or impact the world um, later when it's more convenient. Um, but the reality is for anyone who has worked in a demanding environment for some time knows is that rarely do you actually end up getting all the time that you would like to do those things. And so I'd say, you know, become more productive now so that you'll have the time to invest in the things that are important to you rather than letting some of those either end up getting to an unhealthy place or just lie fallow for years. And so it's good to invest in the things that are important to you, even in small ways from the beginning. Great. Thanks for that, Matt. So for all of our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Matt Plummer. Um, Do check out his article on HBR, How to Be More Productive Without Burning Out, that came out a few weeks ago. Check out his company's website, Zervana, in case you're itching to try a new program to put more time back in your life as the company slogan goes. And Matt, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for what you guys do at Consult Your Community. It's great.